view the biblical Christmas story through the lens of the movie A Christmas Story, which is based on the Gene Shepherd book of a Christmas experience happening the Midwest, sometimes during the mid-50s, 1950s. And if you haven't seen it, I know they start it tomorrow, running it 24 hours a day on TBS and TNT, so you can catch it. But we're trying to look at some elements of that movie and how it may help us really understand more about what the Bible teaches us about the Christmas story. Most of what we get from the Christmas story comes from nativity scenes, from plays that we've seen many times, not necessarily what is in the Bible. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at what the movie calls the dreaded triple dog dare. It was the coup de gras of all dares. It was when Schwartz, Ralphie's friend, this Ralphie over here, when Ralphie's friend Schwartz dared Flick to stick his tongue on a frozen telephone pole or a flagpole. And I have to tell you, uh, it was ironic that within the next week, I probably received 25 emails from you that uh, that week there was a child in Philadelphia that made the national news because they had to call a ambulance and get him off of a flagpole because he stuck his tongue on it. So uh, don't feel foolish when you've done that. And if you haven't done it, when you do it this Christmas, don't feel foolish because it happens. And this morning, I I wanted us to look at a person who is probably my favorite character from the movie. A person who is central to the whole story, but kind of gets pushed off. And that is Ralphie's dad who is known as the old man in the movie. And I think when we watch that movie, if you've seen that movie, when you see the old man, when you see the dad, it it touches our heart because it allows us to think about our dads. Um, So many of the things that happened to Ralphie's dad in the movie, while it may not have happened identically that way to our fathers, many of those same things we can relate to. I think dads um, in many families are the center of the jokes and the things that happen in a family. I think all of us can relate to stories about our dads and how funny incidences happened to them that maybe weren't funny at the time, but looking back, they have been funny. I know in my house, um, my kids love it when my brother and I get together because we tell stories about my dad growing up and the things that happened to him that he doesn't think are funny, but we think are the most funny things in the world, things that he did or things that happened to him. And even to this day, I get a call a week. My brother lives about three miles from my dad. A call a week from my brother telling me uh, of things that have happened to my dad. Most of them are technology stuff. Is uh, t- He can't program the DV or he can't and just how frustrated he gets in those things and we see some of that in Ralphie's dad now there's not a whole lot we know about Ralphie's dad or the old man we know he probably worked a professional job he had a coat and tie when he came home we know that he had trouble with the boiler downstairs he couldn't get the heater to work Uh, We know that he liked a good turkey. That scene there was his wife is cooking the turkey. Uh, We know he had problems changing tires. It wasn't one of his favorite things to do. But probably the most important thing we know about Ralphie's dad is he loved winning prizes. And the whole story of the central part of the, the show is about him winning a very special prize. He called it the ultimate prize. Now, 
even though that prize turned out to be a somewhat risque leg lamp, um, I have a leg lamp that lights up, but I didn't want to bring it because I figured you would be caught in its warm glow and you wouldn't listen to what I had to say. Um, but he got a leg lamp. And I don't think any of us that has seen that movie has received a package or a gift or had a box that had fragile written on the side that you didn't want to say fragile, because that's what the dad says. He says it's Italian. Everybody knows fragile. Well, while Ralphie and his mom and his brother were embarrassed about his dad's gift, the thing I think we relate most to the dad is no matter how gruff he was, no matter how difficult he was, no matter how many warnings he gave Ralphie about his desire to have his gift of a Red Ryder BB gun, in the end, it was his dad who got him that gun. It was his dad who surprised even his wife by giving Ralphie the BB gun. And there's just something touching in that scene that you don't expect this dad to to reach out and touch his son's life. And much like the movie A Christmas Story, the biblical Christmas story is centered around a dad. A dad that we don't know a whole lot about. A dad that many times gets pushed to the side of the story. A dad that if you had to think about it, Right now, you probably couldn't list five things that we know about him. But without him, there is no Christmas story. So this morning, I want us to take just a few minutes to examine the life of Joseph. The life and the experience that Joseph had going and building up to that first nativity scene. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. Very first chapter of Matthew 1. It's given to you in your order of service, but it would help you if you were able to look along with us and read it. Now, as I said, the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about Joseph. Matter of fact, he's only mentioned 17 times in the entire New Testament. There is no instance that Joseph is ever quoted We don't have him saying anything in the entire New Testament. Now, I know in your Christmas pageants, he always was the one who spoke to the innkeeper, right? He was the one that knocked on the door and said, we need room, and the innkeeper said, there's no room. Well, that's not part of the biblical story. All we find out about the innkeeper is the the inn was full. Joseph doesn't say anything to him in the Gospels. It kind of reminds me of a story of a a children's ministry that was putting on their own nativity scene. It was one of the plays that they were doing, much like what our children did a couple of weeks ago. And they'd been preparing for it, and they, they tried out for parts. And it was one boy that really wanted to be Joseph, but he didn't get Joseph. He got the innkeeper. And he was kind of upset because the boy who got Joseph, they were kind of rivals. And they were rivals because they both liked the girl that got married. And so the guy that was the innkeeper, he thought, I'm just going to stay quiet, but I'm going to show him. And so the night of the play, they're all there and the parents are packed. They've all got their phones out and they're taking video. And Mary and Joseph make their way to the inn. And Joseph knocks on the door and the innkeeper opens it kind of gruffly. And Joseph looks at him and says, please, sir, is there anywhere for my wife who is pregnant and I to stay? The innkeeper surprisingly opens the door wide open and says, sure, you can have the best room in the house. Well, Joseph didn't know what to do. He kind of hesitated for a second. This wasn't in the script. That's not how the Bible story goes. But really, without missing a beat, he turns and he looks kind of behind the innkeeper and he says, I'll tell you what, no pregnant wife of mine is staying in a dump like this. Mary, let's go to the barn. And they walked over. In the real Christmas story, Joseph didn't say anything. If you think about what we know about Joseph, as I said, it's less than five really characteristics. We know he was a carpenter. 
We know he lived in Nazareth, small town. We know that he was from the tribe of David, followed the line of David. And we know that while he was not the physical father of Jesus Christ, he was Jesus Christ's dad. He raised Jesus. There's no Christmas song sung about Joseph. I went through and looked in the last three weeks. We've sang 14 Christmas songs, not one mention of Joseph. We sing songs about Mary. We sing songs about the wise men. We sing songs about the donkeys. But we don't sing songs about Joseph. In most pageants that you think of, Joseph is nothing more than window dressing. Think about the Christmas pageants you've seen. What does Joseph do? Stands off at the side, right? Or when the wise men or the shepherds come, he does the little, right, pointing under the... That's, that's really all Joseph does. So we don't think of him as having a significant role in the story of the nativity. We don't think about all that went on in his life. We, we, matter of fact, don't really understand a whole lot about him. We know he was probably older than Mary. There are traditions in the church that say he, he helped to raise Jesus and that after Jesus that he and Mary had several other children. We know that he probably taught him some carpentry skills, but somewhere in between when Jesus was 12 and went to the temple and got lost, and when Jesus began his public ministry at 30, Joseph passes away. We know that church tradition holds that when Mary is there in Jesus' public ministry, she is a widow. We don't know what happened. We don't know why it happened. He really doesn't get a whole lot of respect. But I want you to understand by reading this, without Joseph, there's no Christmas story. Look what it says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother was pledged to be married to Joseph. Now, I've shared with you before that in the Jewish tradition, there are three stages to the marriage. Three stages that go on. The first part of any marriage in a Jewish household starts with a contractual stage. And usually that takes place when the children are very young. The parents get together and they form a contract that their son and their daughters would get married when they came of age. Now, we don't know how old Mary and Joseph were. Many people assume that Joseph is older, so he is probably in his early 20s or late teens. Most people think Mary is between 14 and 18. Those were the prime marrying ages of people in that day. Many times, if they got to 18 or 20, they were old maids. And so we believe that she was probably 15 or 16. But when they were children, their parents got together and made a contract agreeing that Joseph would marry Mary. And usually the dowry, what the woman would give to the man, or the woman's family would give to the man for him marrying her, was included as a part of that contract. Whatever she was worth, two chickens or a donkey, or maybe that's too much. She was worth, you know, whatever she was worth, they signed it as part of that contract. And so after they make a contract, about a year before the ceremony is to take place, becomes what's called the betrothal time. It is the engagement time. It is a time where they are allowed, even though they've known that they are going to marry each other all their lives, in that year before the ceremony, they are allowed to get to know each other and spend time with one another, always with a a chaperone, but they begin to, to fall in love with one another. They begin to enjoy one another's company. And for all intensive purposes, they are legally married except for the ceremony. And this is the point where Joseph comes out in the story. 
They have been engaged to be married. Matter of fact, the ceremony is not far off by what the writers tell us in Luke. And so we can assume the ceremony in a Jewish ceremony is a, is a week-long event. And so they have been preparing for it. They are excited about all that's happening. And so Joseph is betrothed. He is in this espousal stage getting ready to get married. Now I want you to think, those of you that are married, what went on during your engagement period? Think about the emotions that you felt. Think about the excitement that you had. All the planning that you had to do. All the planning that went into it. Joseph has probably been working for the last two years on building a house so that when he and Mary get married, they can move into that house. He, he's excited. His friends have been giving him parties and they've been celebrating. He's been saving money. He's been doing all he could preparing for this moment. He's excited. Imagine what's going on in his heart. Listen to what it says. For his mother Mary was pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. But before they came together, before they had the marriage ceremony, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her. Or some King James versions say, send her away. Now we know in Luke's version that an angel comes to Mary and tells her what's going on. She is given a baby that is conceived by the Holy Spirit that is Jesus Christ. But Joseph didn't know any of that. All Joseph finds out in this time before he was supposed to get married is his wife is pregnant and it's not his child. I want you to step outside. I, I know sometimes we read the Bible and, I mean, we're talking four, four verses. And so it's easy just to kind of brush by it. It's easy to kind of rush to this scene, rush to the manger. But I want you to think about what Joseph had to go through emotionally when he finds out that his fiance, the person that he had been promised to from the time he was a child, the person that he had spent the last year falling in love with, comes and tells him, guess what, I'm pregnant. Can you imagine what he must have felt like? There's probably heartbreak, anger. Probably at first he was in shock. How could Mary, this beautiful girl that he'd fallen in love with, who was so pure, come and tell him that she was going to have a child? There's probably heartbreak. I can imagine. You know what it feels like for some of you when you've been in a long-term relationship and that relationship ends and the heartbreak that comes, he's probably heartbroken. He's probably thinking about, what is everybody else going to say? Nazareth was a small town. They'd grown up. What, what are the neighbors going to say? And what are the friends going to say? What are we going to tell everybody? What are my parents going to say? Then he's probably angry. Most of us have been through those stages. You get angry. God, why? God, why did this happen to me? God, I've done everything that you told me to do. I've done everything that I was supposed to do. And now you're you're allowing my wife to become pregnant. And we don't know if Mary told him, you know, it's not a person. It was from the Holy Spirit. But even if she had, how much do you think he would have believed it? He's angry. He's hurt. He's broken. Some of you have been there before. Some of you have had your plans and your dreams and your hopes All of a sudden, take a sidetrack. All of a sudden, get detoured. You've been through those emotions. 
Everything that you had hoped, everything that you had planned for a relationship or, or for a job or for your future. And you've been looking so forward to it. You've been planning your whole life. And then all of a sudden something comes and there's a wall there that disrupts all of it. You've been through those emotions. Some of you are going through those emotions this morning. That's where Joseph is. And in Joseph's time, he only had three options. The first option was because Mary was pledged to be married and she was pregnant out of wedlock. According to the Jewish law, he could have her stoned. It was a capital offense. Mary could have been killed. Joseph would have been well within his rights to go to the leaders of Nazareth and say, I want her killed. The second option is the option that we decide that, that you know eventually he could do is he could marry her. But then he would face the shame. He would face the embarrassment. He would face the difficulty of the whispers and the gossip behind his back. What everybody thought for the rest of his life. The shame of knowing his wife had a child that wasn't his. And the third option is he could send her away. He could send her off to cousin's house friend's house, and she could go and have the baby, and he could quietly divorce her. He could quietly break the contract. And the Bible says because Joseph loved Mary so much, and because he wanted to do what was right in God's eyes, this is what he chose to do. He decided that he was going to send her away. He decided that he was going to divorce her. Now I want you to look what he says in verse 20. But after he had considered this, now that word considered is contemplate, it is wrestling. And, and really the passage would say, wow, he is contemplating this. And I think this is a time where Joseph is really talking to God. And I don't know if he's listening to God, but he's talking to God. You see, when things begin to crush and crumble and our dreams and our hopes begin to fade away, Many times we go to God with our anger and our hurt. I think he's probably saying to God, I don't understand, God. Why did all this happen to me? I, I've never done anything wrong. Why are you cursing me and my family with, with this situation and this circumstance? Some of you have been there. Some of you have been at that place where you shook your fist at God. Where you were angry with God. Some of you, maybe you're there right now, relationships falling apart and families falling apart and job didn't turn out like you wanted or circumstances aren't going the way you had planned and you're saying, God, I don't understand. Why is this happening to me? That's where Joseph is. That's what he's wrestling with. And he goes to God and the Bible says, God answered him. I want you to listen to what God said. But while he was considering this, while he was wrestling with this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, the son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this is taking place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet. And he quotes Isaiah seven fourteen, For the virgin shall be with child, and she will give him a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now I want you to step out of the spiritual lens and realize what God's doing here. Joseph recognizes that his only hope when things have crashed is to go to God. 
And the first thing that God does when Joseph goes to him broken and hurt, trying to do what is right, is he gives him the big picture. He tells him, this is bigger than you ever thought, Joseph. This is more than your betrothal to a woman who is pregnant. This is about God's ultimate plan. You see, many times in our life, when when things go wrong, when doors close, when circumstances and situations are not what we'd hoped and dreamed, many times we get angry and upset and hurt because all we can see is what's right in front of us. And that's where Joseph was. And so when he went to God, the thing that God did is he expanded his view to say, this is bigger than what you think. I have a plan. Many times the reason we get angry at God, the reason we get mad at God, the reason we are disappointed in our relationship to God is because we lose sight of the principle that God says He has a plan and a purpose for your life. And the Bible is very clear that His plan and His purpose for you is to prosper you. It's not to do harm. It's to bless you. It's to protect you. It's to take what you think is good and turn it to great. But so many times we are so clouded in our vision that we can't see that. You see, Joseph was clouded in his vision. He said, I can't do this. I'm going to send her away. But while he was wrestling with this, God said, let me give you a bigger picture. He said, Joseph, this is bigger than you imagined. This is 800 years in the coming. This is what the prophets have been talking about. Over 400 passages that deal with Jesus' birth and life and death that are fulfilled in the New Testament. He's saying, listen, you don't understand. Do you remember in that passage from Isaiah when the prophet says that God is going to come and be with you? This is what I'm talking about. You are going to be a part of something much bigger than you could ever imagine. And all I need from you, Joseph, is to say yes. Now, I know spiritually speaking, it's easy for us 2,000 years later to look at his life and say, oh, I'd have said yes. There wouldn't have been a question. Yes, God. But in reality, many of us in our 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 and 70 years of life have told God no many times. Because we didn't go and ask. We based our decision making on what we could see instead of the promise that God has a plan. We allowed what we could see and touch and feel and what everyone else said is acceptable to help direct us to be obedient to God instead of listening to His Word and His will and His way. He said, I've got a plan. And the first thing God wants you to know this morning, if your life is turned upside down, if if you're in a situation or circumstance where you have been crying out to God, please hear me, understand, God has a plan for your life and it hasn't gotten off track. The world may throw everything that it can at you. The world may sidetrack you and distract you, but that doesn't change God's plan. I told you a couple of weeks ago that the birth of Jesus Christ was not an accident. It was not happenstance. It was not a dare that before the foundations of the world, before the world had even been spoken into existence, God had a plan to send His Son to die on a cross so that you might be saved. Before Adam and Eve ever walked in the garden, God had a plan so that you might be reconciled to Him. And God's plan hasn't changed. Did you see what he told him? He said, you will name this child. 
Now, you and I automatically think that that's no big deal. God is telling him, I'm going to give you the opportunity to name my child. And you will call him Jesus. Now, many people don't realize that Jesus is the Greek for the Old Testament name Joshua. Yeshua. And in Jesus' day, Joshua, which in Greek is Jesus, was the most common name that there was. He didn't say, I want you to name him Isaiah, or, or I want you to name him Moses. Or, he took the most common name. It'd be like John today. He said, I'm going to take my son, and we are going to name him the most common name in the world, so that you can see that out of the most common person that you could ever imagine, I'm going to do the uncommon. Out of the most ordinary, I'm going to do the extraordinary. I'm going to take the most common name the world knows and I'm going to make it the name upon which mankind gets salvation. He said, Joseph, I want you to name him. I want you to be the one to name Emmanuel, God with us. You see, when they began to understand Isaiah 7.14, when God spoke to him to the prophecy, he began to recognize that this was God's plan to not be a God in the tabernacle or a God in the temple, but to be God with us. That this was God's plan that was revealed through the prophets that God was going to dwell among men. He was no longer going to be out there. Now He was going to be right here. God in flesh. And when he began to get the bigger picture, when he began to see all that God was going to do, he began to understand his purpose in God's plan. You see, for some of you, that's all you're missing this morning. For some of you, you've allowed the things that you can see and the things that people think and the things that people do to keep you from seeing how you fit and how your obedience fits into God's plan, how your relationships fit into God's plan, how your future fits into God's plan. Now, for most of us, I'll just be honest with you. God didn't throw the book open like He did. And it's easy for us to look back 2,000 years ago. Look, He told Him everything. No, He didn't. He didn't tell Him that you're going to have to go to Bethlehem with your wife on an 80-mile journey while she's pregnant on the back of a donkey with no provisions made for you, and you're going to have to go take care of her there. Or that the moment after he gives birth, the king of the region is going to declare that all boys under the age of two are to be killed, so you're going to have to take your wife, your newborn baby, and instead of going back to your mom and dad, you're going to have to go to Nazareth. And he didn't tell him that this child that you're going to take care of, that you're going to love, will one day be crucified on a cross. He didn't give him the whole picture, but what he told him was enough. You see, most of us think, God, if you'll just show me everything, then I'll say yes. That's not faith. If God showed you everything, it'd be easy to obey. But God wants you to trust Him. In the first step, because after the first step, the second step gets easier, and the third step gets easier. And it's in our obedience. When God says, this is your plan, this is my purpose for you, and we say, I I don't understand it. And people may laugh at me, and a lot of people around me are not going to understand it. And they may mock me for being obedient, but I'm going to take that step. It's as we begin to take those steps that God begins to show us the bigger picture. And many times, we don't see the whole plan until we look back on it. And unfortunately for us, many times we can look back on our lives and see the times that we told God no and see where the plan got off track. 
I've told people before, people ask, well, if you tell God no, does that mean God's will doesn't come to fruition? No, God's will is always going to come to fruition. What happens is you miss out on being a part of the blessing in God's will. God's always going to take care of it. If Moses would have said no, God would have sent somebody else. Moses would have missed out on the blessing. If Joseph would have said no, God would have risen up somebody else to take Mary and that child. But Joseph would have missed out on the blessing. See, for some of you this morning, all you see is disaster. All you see is crumbling. All you see is walls. All you see is darkness. And God is wanting you just to open your eyes and turn to Him and trust Him. He got the big picture. And what did He do? Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. That's a huge step. That's a huge step. He said, okay, God. You understand? Before the angel of the Lord showed up, before he went to God, he was ready to send her away. But when God spoke, he said yes. Please hear me. God's not looking for perfect people because there are no perfect people. God's not looking for the best speakers or the best singers or the ones who can communicate the gospel the best or or share and, and draw people unto them. God's not looking for any of that. Because the Bible says the best that you bring, the best skill and talent and gifts that you have, the Bible says, are as filthy rags before a holy God. All God is looking for in you and in me is obedience. Our willingness to say yes. Because it's when we say yes and we step out on faith and say, I don't understand it, God. Even I don't like it. This is going to be hard. This is going to be unexplainable to my family and friends. This is going to be something that no one else is going to understand. But I'll say yes. It's when we begin to say yes that God all of a sudden begins to use us in ways we never could have imagined. Let's go through the Bible. Every one of the characters that we read about in Hebrews 13, the the roll call of faith, the people that we say, these are the people that, that God says follow. Every one of those people are people that were greatly flawed. From a drunkard to someone who cheated on his wife, had his her husband killed, to a guy who was filled with anger. He used all of them. How? Because they said yes. And what Joseph in this manger scene would want us to understand that it's that first step of obedience that opens our eyes to God's will and God's plan. When Joseph said yes, he gave up a lot of stuff. He gave up his pride. He gave up Worrying about what everybody thought about him. He gave up the future that he had dreamed of and planned. He didn't dream of having a baby before he was ever married. He gave up all of those things. But what he received in return was the greatest gift ever. For while he wasn't Jesus' real father, he was Jesus' dad. And for as long as Joseph lived, he got to have the Son of God dwell with him. And the truth of the matter is, the same is true for each one of us in this room. You may think what God is asking you to give to follow Him is is huge. 
You may think it's a great sacrifice. You may say, I, I can't turn my... I have to get out of these relationships and I have to stop doing some of these things. God's not interested in any of that. What He's listening to is for you to say yes. Because whatever you give up to follow Him, to be obedient to Him, to trust Him, is centered around the truth that you get the Son of God to come and live inside of you and to guide you and to teach you and to love you. We don't sing a lot about Him. It gets pushed to the side of many of our manger scenes. We, we don't know a whole lot about Him. But I think most of us in here could probably relate to Joseph more than anybody else in this nativity. We can probably relate to the guy who, while he didn't understand it all, he was just going to trust God. Because I know in this room there's some of you who have faced a life that didn't turn out the way you had planned, whose marriages have fallen apart, whose relationships are a struggle, whose job and, and dreams didn't come to what you thought they would. And this morning you asked the question, why? The first thing you need to realize is that not only is God with you, but He has a plan. And the moment... You move from disappointment to discovery is the place where God begins to show you His plan. But it requires obedience. It requires trust in Him. I'm reminded of a story. American golfer went overseas to the Middle East and he was playing a golf tournament. And while he was there, the king of the country wanted to play golf with him. And he thought this was a great honor. He would play with the king. And so he went to play golf with the king. And they had a great day. And uh, the golf was wonderful. The company was wonderful. And the king afterwards told him, you know, I'm so blessed that you took the time to play with me. Is there anything I can do for you? The golfer thought, well, really, there's nothing. He says, I do collect golf clubs. He said, I've always enjoyed collecting golf clubs. The king said, that's what I'll do. I'll give you a unique and incredible golf club. So the golfer went home and thought after the tournament, you know, surely he's going to get some jewel-encrusted putter or maybe a a diamond uh, driver. And so he waited and he waited and he didn't get anything for a while. And so he thought maybe the king had forgotten. And then one day there was a knock at his door and it was a delivery man. And he had a a formal package for him to sign. And he thought, this strange, there's not a golf club in there. And he opened it up when he began to read. It was the deed to one of the most famous golf courses in America. A unique golf club. You see, what you and I need to understand this morning is kings don't look at things the way we look at things. They see it differently. And you and I serve the king of kings. The king of all kings. And the way you look at things is not the way he sees them. Our job Our responsibility, our joy is to begin to see them the way He sees them and then trust that we can follow Him. When I think of Joseph, the last thing that I would ever think of is fragile, fragile. Because he stepped out in boldness. Even in those eight verses where it doesn't... He stepped out in boldness and said, yes. And because of that... We have this. The question for you and I this morning is will we do the same? 
Let's pray.